to Hotel Bar Sessions, the podcast where three philosophers sit down at the end of a long conference day to chop it up at the hotel bar, which, as we all know, is where the real philosophy happens. Welcome back to another episode of Hotel Bar Sessions. I'm your host this week, Rick Lee, and I'm joined by my two co-hosts, Dr. Lee M. Johnson and Dr. Charles Peterson. This week, cheaters gonna cheat. We're talking about plagiarism. <laughs> Do you even care? Does it even matter? But before we get into plagiarizing our discussion of plagiarism, as usual, Noelle is standing by and Lee, she wants to know what you're drinking. And I want to know, are you ranting or raving? Today, I am going to have literally anything that Noelle can make that's frozen and also has alcohol in it. It is going to be 112 <laughs> degree heat index today in Memphis. and oh, It is honey. hot out there. I know. And relatedly, I'm ranting. <laughs> this week, I am ranting about the continued use of the Turing test to demonstrate the sophistication of artificial intelligence. Mm. So you may remember relatively recently that a former Google employee published this paper claiming that Google had a sentient AI. And that's a whole discussion for another <laughs> podcast. But a lot of people keep using this Turing test, which, as you both know, is the test to see if a computer program could be mistaken for a human being as evidence of consciousness or sentience or something like that. And it's really just a terrible way to think about the Turing test. And I recently saw a tweet by someone who said, you know what the Turing test is? It's just drag. It's just a computer performing <laughs> in drag. And so we need to stop using it as something that indicates something more significant than it is. So that's what I'm ranting about today, the Turing test. Charles, what about you? What are you drinking? And are you ranting or raving? I spoke with Noel and Noel was able to get one of my favorite beers. Gary, Indiana has a great microbrewery called 18th Street Brewery. They make a fantastic lager called Simply Mexican. I'm not a huge lager fan, but it's the tastiest beer I've ever had. So, Noel, I'll take 12 ounces of your Simply Mexican lager from 18th Street Brewery in Gary, Indiana. Call us. Call us. I am raving about Representative Benny Thompson of Mississippi, who is the chair of the House January 6th Committee. <laughs> Benny Thompson has been holding this thing down from day one, dealing with the press, wrangling interviews, handling the organization of this whole thing. He's doing a fantastic job, but it's being overshadowed by Liz Cheney, who credit to her for doing the right thing. But Benny Thompson is doing the amazing thing of pushing forward to get to the truth about what happened. So credit to Benny Thompson. Thank you for your service. Here, here. I'm amazed by how able he is to rein in what is his obvious outrage. <laughs> exactly. His suppressive instinct is amazing. If he can bottle that up, I'll buy a bottle of that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> what are you drinking and what are you ranting and raving about today, Rick? Well, I feel like I'm coming down with something and I'll come back to this in my rant. So, Noel, I'll have a hot toddy. I need something mm. to warm me from the inside out. This week, I am ranting about the Swedish non-response to COVID. So I just spent almost a week in Sweden, and famously, they have had no response to COVID. When you compare the death rates in Sweden with their nearest neighbors, Norway and Finland, 
it's extraordinary how many people died who didn't have to die. And they continue in wave after wave to simply ignore COVID. And now I'm worried, having just traveled from Sweden yesterday, that this congestion I'm starting to feel is the beginning of COVID. Sending negative vibes to you. (laughs) You know, it seems that you're on that Florida-Sweden corridor, and there's just no joy. (laughs) There's just no joy on that corridor. Well, and now I'm in Poland, which is politically (laughs) really joyous. Right. Oh, my God. We got to get you to a happier place. All right. So, Lee, I know we're talking about plagiarism this week, but what did you have in mind? Well, it turns out that several studies that I've looked at recently have shown that around 60 to 65 percent of undergraduates admit to having cheated on an exam or a paper or an assignment at some point during their college careers. And 85 percent of undergraduates say that they believe that cheating is a necessary part of excelling in college. And I think this is a tough subject because we're obviously coming at it from the point of view of professors. And it's a very frustrating thing to have students plagiarize or cheat. But we also have to keep in mind that these students have grown up in an era in which retweeting, recycling, or repurposing information has been just a regular part of their lives. And done with not a lot of stringent rules surrounding it. Despite that, there are still many among us who want to hold on to the centuries-old norms of research and attribution and scholarship that have so far been the building blocks of the Library of Human Knowledge. And so today, I want to talk about cheating, how much we care about cheating, and maybe whether or not it's time to reevaluate what we count as cheating. off with this question. How much do you care about cheating? In my classes, I don't usually give exams. Sometimes I call them exams, but they're take home and they're more like short essays where I guide them with a question or something. And so I think when it comes to cheating, then the concern would be mostly plagiarism. I used to care a lot about it. And I used to track down every instance of it. And frankly, now... I haven't legalized it, but I have decriminalized it. (laughs) I think that, first of all, it's an opportunity for learning and teaching. And I actually have come to believe that a lot of students accidentally plagiarize or are not clear on exactly why what they've done is wrong or maybe wrong is even too strong, but against the norms of an academic community and so on. And so I don't want to punish them for that. I want to help them understand why certain things are important and why other things might not be so important. So I give minimal attention these days to cheating and plagiarism. What about you, Charles? I'm soft like Rick. I mean, I talk about plagiarism the first day of class when we go through the syllabus. Oberlin has an honor code and students... At the bottom of the papers, I have it adhered to the honor code, yada, yada, yada. I take it very seriously, and I tell them why. I take it seriously, but I tend to lean toward if there's plagiarism, then it's an error. The number of high schools that are actually training their students to have a grasp of proper citation styles is diminishing. So I presume that students who make that mistake probably just haven't been trained. 
versus that this is some type of felonious attempt to defraud the state of my class. <laughs> so I take it as an error on the part of students, and I take the opportunity to correct their error and possibly teach them what it means to properly cite, why it's important to properly cite, so that going forward, they won't make that error again. Because whereas I'm a softie, once again, like Rick is, there are professors that are not softies and will burn students down mm. if they believe that they're intentionally trying to plagiarize. What about you, Lee? Well, about 12 or so years ago, I wrote this essay on my blog that was titled Why I Don't Care About Cheating. We'll put a link to it in the notes to this episode. And that's probably an overstatement of my actual position. I mean, I do care about cheating. And there are times when I do enforce the rules as they're written about cheating. But there I tried to explain that I want to help my students understand that cheating primarily hurts the cheater. It doesn't hurt me. You're not getting one over on me. And even if you are, I don't care. So, <laughs> you know, and maybe that means that I let more cheaters through or let more cheaters gain some advantage from their cheating. But I contrast that with what I increasingly see as what it takes to really care about cheating, Googling everybody's phrases, constantly treating students as if they're already putative cheaters. And the truth is, is that that takes a lot of time. And I got into this profession because I love philosophy, I love teaching, and I love learning. I do not love surveilling and punishing. <laughs> and if I wanted to be police, I would have been police. <laughs> There have been two moments in my career that I got very angry and started to care about these two instances. One was a student in a class called Great Christian Thinkers had a <laughs> sentence in his paper that went like this. The interesting thing about Thomas Aquinas is that he has a topology of being, but not a historiography of being. And I'm like, okay, come on. <laughs> come on. So, you know, these, this was before the interwebs. And so I went to the library. I just looked up the keywords and so on, found a journal article with almost all those titles in it. And I went down to the bound journals and the article had been cut out of the journals. And then I was pissed. Ah, uh, yes. Because in order to cover his tracks, he had to now make that text unavailable to anyone else. That kid is probably a very successful lawyer right now. I'm sure. <laughs> I can sympathize with the being angry about lazy cheating. A minute ago, I said, cheating hurts the cheater. It doesn't hurt me. But sometimes it insults me as a person yeah. when it's yeah. done so poorly. I read an essay one time that had a paragraph that began thirdly, and there was no firstly or secondly. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I was like, something is amiss. Right. <laughs> yeah. And then the second instance was a student, my first year when I started teaching, at DePaul, who I caught plagiarizing. And I asked him to see me in my office, and he immediately knew what was going on. And I quote him, he said, I hope you don't think I'm a cheater. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, well, in that you have cheated, I don't know what else to call you. And then the next thing out of his mouth was, well, I can't fail this class because I'm trying to get into University of Michigan's business school. Mm -hmm. And I mm -hmm. said, you see there, you just confirmed all of my worst ideas about business school and what they are teaching. <laughs> that made me also angry. 
But that is a real thing, the pressures to cheat. I was really shocked by that statistic that I mentioned in the intro, that 85% of students see cheating as part of, essential part of excelling in college. I can't count how many times I've had students come to me and say, I know I cheated. I'm sorry, but I can't fail this class. I can't fail this test. I can't fail this assignment because of some other overarching project that they're invested in. And I think that there are obvious cases of cheating. For example, we all know this one where you see that something has been copied and pasted from the web and they haven't changed the background, right? (laughs) Uh, They've just inserted it into the middle of a sentence. And those are the kind of red-handed cases where you can say, look, let's sit down, let's have a conversation, not only about why this is wrong and why you can't do this, but also why are you doing this? What kinds of pressures are you under? What do we need to do to get you in a space where you don't feel like you need to do this? Because the consequences of this could be dire for you. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the juice ain't worth the squeeze there. So those kinds of obvious instances of cheating are ones that are easier to handle, whether or not we choose to punish or to educate with those, they're still easier to handle. But I think that this new environment of learning is something that we really do have to talk about. I mean, if we were on it to be academic integrity police, we are literally outgunned by petabytes of information that's out there that's almost impossible to track down. How do we deal with that? In my experience, the overwhelming number of cases of plagiarism come when a student has put off doing the assignment until it's getting later and later, and then they panic. And Mm -hmm. in their panic, then they cut and paste. And I try to talk with them about how it's a time management issue, and also that I'd rather have them email me and say, hey, I'm just not going to get this done. And you might not get full credit, but at least you're not going to get the penalty you would if you plagiarized. What I try to do, and I'm not sure if this is completely effective in terms of deterring students from plagiarizing, but I do set limits on where they can get certainly online information from. So I've said you can't use Wikipedia. You can't use a random website unless it's peer-reviewed. And at the very least, I can make sure that students, if they're going to steal information from someone else, it's going to be high-quality, top-grade information (laughs) that they're stealing. (laughs) One of the examples I like to give is, this was back in the early days of the interwebs, where there was a website devoted to Martin Luther King Jr., right? That's great. But as you read it, you're like, oh, this was a website posted by a white supremacist. So I give that example to my students and say, look, it's really probably best if you go to authentic sources of information so you can avoid these types of errors. I'm not sure if that deters plagiarizing or not, but at the very least, we can put ourselves within a boundary of credible information that students are using for their work. That's so surprising because in general, there are so few white supremacists on the internet. Yeah, I know. I was shocked. Shocked, I tell you, with white supremacy on the internet. But speaking of internet sources of information, as opposed to physical book sources of information, I mean, don't you think that students are undertrained at the pre-college level for the norms of citation, et cetera? Yeah, that's why I'm always sympathetic to them. I never sit a student down and say, hey, you're a cheater. You have stolen and this is not your language. But I I do say to them, I think the information that you've presented here, I mean, it would be nice to see the sources. 
Mm. And it's helpful for the reader, right? You may have someone who reads this, who's interested in what you're saying, and then maybe they'd like to go back to the primary source from which you've called this information. So I never say you're a cheater because somebody may break down in tears, whatever. I kind of don't want to hear the sob story about whatever, whatever. But let's help you redirect in such a way where you can do it in good conscience and hopefully understand the larger point of why it's important not to take others' work without attribution. Yeah, and I think this is where it gets hard. And this is where we see the contrast between old media and new media so dramatically. They're often not entirely sure what counts as plagiarism. So I have students who will literally cite the birth and death dates of the person that they're writing about because they're so so paranoid about plagiarizing. And then I have other students who will lift entire paragraphs from their source material because they just don't care about plagiarism. But then there's this middle group where you have (laughs) students who will have actually read some quality source material and will write a paragraph that effectively lifts the argument of that source material but they don't actually quote the words. And so they feel like they don't have to quote the source material. And those are the hardest ones for me to deal with because I want to say this technically is plagiarism, but there's so much more about the norms of citation and research that you already have to understand for me to show you how this is plagiarism. And those norms of citation and research are so foreign to the way that they deal with information. Yeah, and I start my class by saying that a university is a community of scholars and researchers, and for all of us, there is absolutely nothing wrong with using the work of others and relying on the work of others to advance our knowledge and our understanding and so on. And we have one simple rule. If your words or ideas or arguments came from somewhere else, you just have to tell the reader. And that's it. Once you do that, then you're fine. So just tell the reader, hey, I got this idea from a class. I got this idea from this book. And then you're fine. But it's hard at the undergraduate level before you know what common knowledge is Mm. to know what you need to cite because everything that you're saying is new to you, borrowed from somebody else. I mean, you didn't quite literally have anything at all to say about Plato until you sat down (laughs) to write this essay. And so everything about Plato is new to you. Again, this is a problem with the new media, old media contrast is that even just the understanding of what is common knowledge, what do I not have to cite, is really a gray area. So we have a PhD program, and so our grad students are teaching the overwhelming majority of our undergraduate students. But I forget what DePaul calls it, but like the Academic Honesty Board or Academic Integrity Review Board or something. The administrator who is in charge of organizing that came to me when I was chair, and she's like, Rick, something like 85% of our plagiarism cases are coming from your graduate students and the classes they're teaching. I don't want to say they can't use the process and so on, but maybe you could have a talk with them about what's going on here. And so I contacted a number of people in the university who deal with writing at the university level, who deal with pedagogy at the university level, and we kind of had a roundtable. And they all seem to agree that part of the responsibility for plagiarism comes from what we as instructors are asking our students to do. 
and that mm-hmm. we could craft assignments that would make plagiarism either unnecessary or impossible or, you know, it just wouldn't come up. And that really made me think a lot about what I'm asking students to do and why I'm asking them to do it. This leads us to ask the question, what exactly is the penalty? What exactly do students lose if they are consistent plagiarizers, right? If this is just the way they get down and how they navigate the institution, what is lost? Well, they're not learning. I mean, that's the thing, right, (laughs) is that if you're cheating, you're not learning. And I want to bracket that a little bit because I do think that there are some instances in which when you're cheating, you are learning. So I think that a lot of times students will borrow the words of other people because they feel like they're stating it in their own words will sound dumb. And even having to copy those words and put it into a paragraph, at least they're learning how to say it in a smart way. You know, obviously, we still need to have the conversation about plagiarism, but I can have that conversation and say, look, you're 17, 18, 19 years old. Nobody has brilliant ideas about this at your age. Everybody else in here feels just as dumb and it's just as risky to state something in their own words. But you want to avoid doing this you know, for the reasons that we've talked about already. So several years ago, I was doing research for my dissertation in Poland, and I met a student, and she and her friends used to get together and make these tiny, tiny, tiny little cheat sheets for their exams. This was in the Academy of Economics, and so, you know, there were tests where there were actual answers and so on. And I tried to tell them, like, this is wrong. What are you doing? And they said, well, you know, everybody does this. You can't get by if you don't cheat, as you were saying earlier, Lee. But the funny thing is, after the exam, I ran into her again, and I'm like, hey, so did you use your cheat sheet? And she said, no, because it turns out that the activity of making the cheat sheet helped (laughs) me learn the material. Exactly. 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 And I think that that's not an uncommon experience. Yeah, no. But she did bring it in with her. (laughs) It's like a safety blanket. (laughs) Hey, listeners, before we have too many drinks and it slips my mind, if you can't catch us at the hotel bar, you can catch us on Twitter at Hotel Bar Podcast. You can also follow our HBS hosts individually on Twitter to catch their off air thoughts. You can follow Charles at at C underscore F Peterson. And Peterson is with an O, not an E. O, not an E. Rick is at, at Rick Lee Philos. That's Rick Lee with two E's and Philos spelled like half of the word philosophy. And Lee is at Dr. Lee M. Johnson. The doctor's abbreviated and Lee spelled L-E-I-G-H. So it seems as if In relation to our students, we're all soft on cheaters. But there are people who I think their character is to be cheaters. And I'm thinking about someone like Donald Trump, for example, that I think he just cheats all the time. And so I'm a little bit rougher on the idea of plagiarizing and cheating when we get out of the world of being students and we get into the world of professionals, politicians, journalists, and even ourselves as scholars who write and publish 
Yeah, I mean, professional cheating in the academy has been devastating for not only individuals, but journals and publishers. There's someone who works in late medieval, or worked, I should say, in late medieval and early modern philosophy, and he was at the Catholic University of Leuven in Belgium. At a certain point, someone discovered that something he had written was plagiarized, and then people started looking, and they found another, and another, and another. And then they discovered more than half of the work he's ever produced has been plagiarized. Wow. Some of it from his own colleagues. Hmm. He was eventually fired, and a friend of mine who taught at that university said, well, that's okay. He could just get a job at the copy shop. (laughs) (laughs) But, I mean, there are a number of journals also in the sciences, social sciences, that have had to retract things precisely because of plagiarism. And there was a scandal quite recently in the paper of record. The New York Times published this article called The Ransom, which was about Haiti and apparently relied on a lot of local Haitians for source material and credited none of them with it. Boo. So here's the question I have. Now we've moved on to the level of professional plagiarism. What is the significance of this per field? Like we understand what it means for journalists to cheat. Can we articulate a distinctive problem with scholars or academicians cheating? And certainly we can talk about the problematic of scientists, people in the STEM fields, and what cheating means for them. Is there a distinction between those three areas Or does it all have the same meaning? I like this question because I'm sometimes frustrated by the fact that people think, well, there are real consequences if you're a STEM student Mm. for cheating. You know, like if you cheat your way through med school, you're going to kill somebody. If you cheat your way through engineering school, a bridge is going to collapse. But if you cheat your way through philosophy graduate school or if you cheat your way through history graduate school, so you're going to misstate things or whatever. You're not going to know the things that you are supposed to know. And so it seems like for the non-STEM fields, it's just a matter of honor. And honor sometimes rings hollow and outdated, I think, for a lot of people in today's world. Is it just honor or is it a question of, you know, monetization as well or professional standing or stature that gets lost if someone takes your super brilliant idea and passes it off as their own? Do they get invited to move to a research one? Do they get the book contract or the lectures instead of you because they've taken your idea? Right, because junior scholars, if they submit articles for publication, those things should be cited extensively. So they have to include all the credit to all of the already well-established academics. But a widespread practice in most academic fields is for the people who already have that esteem and stature to not credit their graduate students who they often borrow ideas and words from. For sure. And I mean, I'm with Charles that one of the dangers in, let's say, some of the social sciences and humanities is that someone does make a reputation for themselves that not only did they not earn by doing the work, but that they might be actually taking someone else's reputation away from them, which Mm -hmm. could materially hurt them in the form of, as Charles was saying, future publications, invitations, and all of the things we need to succeed. I often think a big part of this issue is related to two issues that are themselves related to one another. 
One is the demands for publication for tenure and promotion require that all of us write a lot more than perhaps we ought to or even than perhaps is necessary. Secondly, and as a consequence of that, a lot more is being published than anyone, even who's an expert in the field, could reasonably consume and take account of. Right. So that even when I'm a peer reviewer of an essay, I'm not sure I could tell whether there isn't an essay somewhere, even though it's in my field, that this isn't plagiarizing. And that's just because there's too much. We can't keep up. The infrastructure can't keep up with the pace of production. Right. And if you can tell that it's plagiarized, it's probably only because it's plagiarizing a source that's already well cited. <laughs> right. right. Or you. Or you, yeah. <laughs> yeah <right. laughs> it's like, this is my, wait a minute, damn it. <laughs> so I asked that question and I like what Lee said about this sense that academics, we're concerned about this because of honor. No, there's some very real consequences in terms of how it affects one's career path, how it affects one's stature in the field that if not the exact same thing, is certainly parallel to the problems of plagiarism and stealing and cheating in other fields. But I think even the consequences are honor-related, that they're about reputation, they're about esteem. And maybe this is not the time to make this point, but I've said to you both before that I really do, as maybe even a metaphysical principle, but certainly a moral principle, believe that information wants to be free. I'm not sure that the infrastructure that we have built, which is primarily about securing honor, securing reputation, securing a certain hierarchy of esteem, is as important as the free spread of information. Well, I think that in this discussion, it is really important to make a distinction that Charles wanted us to make at the beginning of our conversation, that I think a doctor who cheats through medical school, i.e. looks at their neighbor's exam while they're sitting there taking exams, or gets it ahead of time and memorizes the answers, that person is dangerous. But I'm not sure that the biologist who plagiarizes a paper on meiosis, that's the only biological word I know, <laughs> I'm not sure they're dangerous as long as they understand the material they're plagiarizing. So they're taking a shortcut, but it's not as if they, because of that, don't have the knowledge, whereas the person cheating in a med school exam, I think, is not acquiring the knowledge and therefore is a threat to humanity. I agree. I knew guys in undergrad who were cheating on their biology tests. And I was like, if you guys become doctors, I'm never ever going to go to you as a patient because of what I've seen now my freshman year. But if you're talking about a biologist that plagiarizes from a fellow biologist, then it seems to me that may be a real question of exploitation. Exploitation in that for a biologist or any type of academician to generate the information that's now being stolen, that's a tremendous investment of capital and time and experience. And then you take that for your own benefit. So once again, back to the, do I get this invitation versus you getting the invitation? Now we're talking about the world of grants and the world of multi-million dollar contracts, being able to set up labs to further that work. I mean, that's a stealing in the sense that we really think about stealing, like someone taking your car from you while you're sleeping in your bed at night. 
I 100% agree with you that it is an instance of exploitation. But I think, as is always the case when you're talking about exploitation, the problem is as much with the structure that permits that kind of exploitation as it is with the exploitation itself. But I wanted to say one thing about the doctor who cheats his way through medical school. I don't think that it's ever really the case that someone cheats their way all the way through medical school, right? So if we could talk about doctors who cheat and their consequences, real life consequences to them not having learned something or not knowing something important that might endanger someone else. But the truth is, is that most students cheat not to go from zero to graduation having learned nothing. Most students cheat to either be top of their class, graduate with more honor than they would have graduated, or to just get by those things that are not going to really have significant consequence for their lives post-graduation. Like a philosophy class. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So I'm not sure now that I'm talking it through that there is that much difference between cheating in the STEM fields and cheating in the non-STEM fields all the way around, it has to do with this infrastructure of academic integrity and honor and reputation and esteem that people are violating. I agree with you, Lee, that I think it would be the rare person who didn't learn a damn thing in medical school (laughs) and graduates. (laughs) But I also want to go back to what I have learned from experts in the field, namely, maybe medical education ought to look at what they're actually trying to achieve and whether exams are the best way to do it or not. And I know several years ago, I think it was Yale's medical school, it could have been Harvard's, reoriented their entire curriculum. They would divide students into teams and they would actually see patients day one. I mean, they were obviously overseen by a faculty member and they would learn all of their medicine in talking through cases and figuring out what was going on, hashing it out with the faculty and so on, and then moving on to the next case, in which case I think there's less opportunity to cheat. If you have an exam and you say, okay, you have two hours to do this, I feel like you're asking a certain population at that point to cheat. (laughs) I like the idea that the form of pedagogy is going to encourage certain types of shortcuts or cheating. And you're right. If you have entered into what basically sounds like Yale has initiated or reinitiated an apprenticeship program, you can't cheat because it's right there. It's in front of you. You've got to know it. And the accountability and the proof of your knowledge is always being subject to some type of examination. But if we could just for a minute go back to how bad is plagiarism really, once we're outside of the norms of the academy, I think that we all the time in our everyday conversation plagiarize without citation. Sure. I tell stories all the time that are other people's stories, and I tell them as if they were mine, as if it happened to me. Or I will quote something at the bar, and I won't say from Marx's 1855 Philosophic and Economic (laughs) Manuscripts. So I think that we do that all the time, and we recognize that that free sharing of information is important. It's important for all of us. It's important for teaching and learning and moving forward collaboratively with our thoughts and our conversations, etc. So this idea that plagiarism is the cardinal sin in the academy is something that I really think needs to be rethought. But can I throw a wrench in that? Because your example of the New York Times piece, not crediting the actual Haitians who contributed all or most of the information that was used, 
for some reason, I find that incredibly egregious. Mm -hmm. And I find it egregious because of the power differential between a New York Times journalist and someone who may be a journalist or have other work in Haiti. And secondly, like, why not give a struggling young Haitian journalist or academic or whatever, give him a leg up? Like, what do you care? I mean, I think that's a good point. And again, I think that that's because attribution in this context is related to a certain kind of esteem or reputation or credit. I think in my normal life, I would not tell a story that began, I was born a young black baby. (laughs) Because, again, that seems like exploitation. But I still think that with those exceptions, which I think are probably pretty few and far between, in our normal everyday interactions, that we don't find plagiarism as morally objectionable as we do in these infrastructures of reputation and esteem. No, because the question becomes, well, what's at stake? And I guess I'm going back to the question of the material benefits that are gained. If you're just telling a story in a bar and you're telling it like it's your own, well, there's really nothing at stake there. No one really loses anything. The person who experienced what you're describing, they're not going to go hungry. They're not going to lose a job. So that doesn't matter. Do we only consider plagiarism a very real concern if there is actually some vulnerability that can be struck by plagiarizing from someone? Me personally, I do tend to say, oh, a friend told me this, or I heard about this guy, or if I'm quoting somebody, I say, yeah, yeah, like Marx would say. I am very conscientious about that because for me, it's important to be honest about that, that this is not my thought. This is someone else's thought. Well, I have an example sort of in Lee's vein. I think the story comes from Greg Recco, who was a grad student at Penn State and is now a Don at St. John's. I have told it many times as if it were my own, and I think once he caught me, but then I explained why I tell it as my own. Because it's funny. And I think my correction actually makes the story funnier. And also the humor of the story does not depend on the observer who observed what went on in the story. And the story goes like this. The way I tell it is I was walking down the street and there were two people in front of me. And one said to the other, do you remember the time I was telling you about that salad? (laughs) So that is a question that makes no sense in any life context. A salad is by definition forgettable. So you wouldn't have been talking about it in the first place. And so now when you're asking, do you remember the time I was talking about it? And when Greg overheard me talk about this, I think it might not be Greg. And if not, Greg, if you're listening, I'm sorry. But if you are listening, I'm also sorry. And he's also sorry to the person who did say it. Right. Right. (laughs) But in the original version, the person simply said, do you remember the time I was having that salad? (laughs) So, Greg, now I've come clean. But there, I don't attribute because the humor of it doesn't depend on who it happens to. And I get nothing in terms of esteem or credit or anything out of having been the one who observed this or not. But that makes me think about probably one of the most dramatic instances where plagiarism has real effects, and that's in the field of comedy and stand-up comedy in particular. I remember a few years ago, the comedian Carlos Mencia had been pretty consistently accused of stealing other people's jokes, and not even obscure comedians, but also famous comedians. And that was a huge explosion within the comedy community. 
for the very reasons we're talking about. Not only is it a question of I could lose money because this joke is funny. Now you're stealing this opportunity for me to work. But also crafting a good joke says something about my intellectual ability. I want people to know that I'm actually this brilliant. I'm actually this funny because that's my bread and butter, literally being funny and being perceived as very funny. Again, though, I think in that example, it's because the economy of esteem in comedy is related to not just being funny, but being original. And so to say someone else's joke as if it were your own is stealing. And I think it mirrors exactly the way that we were talking about plagiarism working in every other economy of esteem. And one of the interesting things about stand-up comedy is that to the extent that something is a joke, it is definitely repeatable. Yeah. And the repetition, in fact, is built into the very structure of the joke. So if I said to both of you, do you have any jokes you like? And you tell me one, it's because the repetition is really just built into the jokes. Like the joke is repeatable. Yeah. So I think that when we find out that someone has plagiarized that we don't trust them in a certain kind of way. And I'm wondering, both of you, if you don't trust them in the way that you don't trust a liar, or you don't trust them in the way that you don't trust a thief. Oh, I don't think that it necessarily comes down to, well, I don't trust you, which is not an illegitimate sense. But I feel more like I've lost respect for you. And not necessarily because of the theft, but you've fallen in my consideration of you in terms of your character. I don't feel that way, particularly about necessarily a thief. But there's something about someone who's too lazy to express their own thoughts that is really, really disgusting for me. Hmm. So I suppose this changes once we moved away from students, because I would never say that plagiarism is a sign that a student is too lazy to come up with their own thoughts. I think, as Lee said, one reason is they're not sure that they can say it in the way that is appropriate, or they don't trust their own abilities, or they get into time crunches and so on and so on and so on. To take an example, if I found out that a doctor had cheated a lot during medical school, I would find a different doctor because I don't trust them as a liar. They're lying to me about the knowledge and ability they have. I was trying to think of an example, and this is not going to work because the three of us have these conversations all the time, both on air and off air. But if you found out that more than half of my work was plagiarized, would you start thinking, well, he's not the philosopher I thought he was? Now, for someone I didn't know personally, but only knew their work, if I found that out, I would think, okay, I now have to go back and rethink what the importance of their philosophy is and what they're about. I think for me, again, not talking about students, but plagiarizing among professionals. My inclination is to say that subsequent to finding out that they plagiarized, I would not trust them like a thief mm. and not like a liar. I think that I would still presume that they were capable, I mean, not only capable of telling the truth, but were likely telling the truth about a lot of things, but that some of those things were not theirs. Yeah, I could see that. could definitely see that. And so I don't want to be dogmatic about not trusting someone <laughs> like a liar. 
And that goes back to my raising your example again of the New York Times piece, that that's galling because they're thieves. Right, exactly. You brought up the power dynamic as well, Rick, Mm -hmm. in terms of that. Yeah. You're blocking someone's possible professional recognition, which has real world benefits. But yeah, for me, I just think, especially if you're someone in a position that has the resources, that has the support, and has the platform that your thoughts will be aired upon, then I'm just like, yo, you're you're just low. There are reasons why people steal. A host of reasons that I can completely say, okay, I acknowledge that. I may not agree with it, but I acknowledge that. There is no reason to steal from someone who has less than you. Right. Yeah, that I that's will it. say. Yeah, that's it. No reason. Lame are up. Oh, snap. Lee just plagiarized our earlier episode. <laughs> <laughs> right. Can you plagiarize for yourself? That is so interesting that you say that. So Charles sort of passively reprimanded me for not being honest when I tell stories as if it happened to me when it actually happened to someone else. Another thing that I often do a lot is tell stories that did happen to me or jokes that I did come up with as if someone else told them to me. Mm. I'll say, oh, you know, a friend told me and then I'll say it. And my wife will sometimes say to me, why did you say somebody else said that? That you said that I heard I was there the first time you said that. (laughs) But sometimes it's just feels like a more natural way to tell the story. And again, I think in everyday conversation, we're not invested in that ethos of citation and attribution, and it just doesn't matter. Yeah, well, and when you're workshopping a bit, maybe taking you out of it, <laughs> right? Exactly. <laughs> will give you a more honest audience response. Right, you try to see, is this, is it, do you find this funny, or do you find this funny because I'm telling it to you right now? Because if you don't, I'm going to be like, yeah, that dude's never funny. I don't know why I repeated that. <laughs> what an idiot. Hey, we couldn't hear you while you were shouting into your headphones. So if you have feedback or suggestions for future topics, or if you just want to pick a fight with one of our co-hosts, or in fact all of us, just visit us at www.hotelbarpodcast.com and click on the interactive page. If you want to belly up to the bar with us, at least virtually, you can always email an audio clip, keep it under two minutes please, to hotelbarpodcast at gmail.com. If it's interesting, we're going to steal it from you. If it's not, we'll send you our Venmo handles and you can virtually buy us a drink. So, Lee, what I'm wondering is, given the instances in which plagiarism is egregious and does harm and so on, how do we square that then with your position that information wants to be free? If I want to insist information wants to be free then plagiarism has no meaning? So let me not talk about plagiarism for just one second and explain what I mean just by that claim. You've mentioned this before, that we make this distinction in philosophy between free as in rights and free as in beer. Mm -hmm. The Latin is free as in liberté, not as in gratis. Right. And I believe that information wants to be free in the first sense, free as in liberté. And I think that I might actually believe that as a metaphysical principle, that if something can be known, it will be known, Mm. that once information is produced, it will be shared. And so in that sense, I do worry that the obsession with attribution is just more evidence of the way that capitalist ideology of private property has its hooks in us. And that the only thing stopping us from just letting all information be free, both in the liberté and gratis sense, 
is that it imperils the material lives of knowledge producers, either in terms of reputation and esteem or in terms of money. I do recognize, nevertheless, that we are living under the capitalist regime. And so plagiarism does have real consequences. And there are really good moral reasons to police it because it often, as you both have pointed out, involves punching down, involves exploitation. And those are things that we really need to be mindful about. But in my utopian world, and I'm sorry I wasn't here for y'all's discussion of utopia last season, but in my utopian world, we would just get rid of all of this. We would just get rid of this obsession with citation and attribution. I think the two consequences of that, again, this is after the workers' revolution, but the two consequences of that would be, first, there would be more knowledge production and more interesting knowledge production. And second, more people would be educated. Yeah. So two things. One, I think in this discussion of information wants to be free, we, or I at least, would be remiss if I didn't mention the fact that Aaron Schwartz pretty much died mm -hmm. because of this. And the case is really a simple case. MIT, which is the institution behind Project Muse, has all of this information, academic articles and so on, that Aaron Schwartz was siphoning off of their on-campus servers and making it public. They harangued him so excessively given the nature of their quote-unquote losses that they basically drove him to suicide. So mm. I would just like to shout him out. There's a really great documentary that you can watch for free about Aaron Schwartz on YouTube, and it's called The Internet's Own Boy, and I strongly encourage everyone to watch it. But then I really could not agree more with your idea that if information were free, there would be much more of it. I'm a big fan for those of you who are interested in what frequently is called the copyleft movement instead of copyright. They have these licenses that guarantee the continued public availability of the so-called copyrighted material. The EFF and Creative Commons, these are organizations that support these sort of copyleft licenses. But this all reminds me of Derrida's engagement with the philosopher John Searle, gathered in the text titled Limited Inc. And this is not necessarily a central part of the argument, but at one point he notices that Searle puts the copyright symbol at the bottom of everything he sends to Derrida. <laughs> and Derrida says, well, this copyright symbol must be an assurance that what you are saying is false. Because if it's true, it seems like it's impossible to copyright that. Like, you can't copyright 2 plus 2 equals 4. And so if, if you copyright this, this must be a, an assurance on your part that what you are saying under the sign of the copyright is false. Oh, Derrida. That's why we call him Tricky D. <laughs> um, I agree with what you're saying in terms of free as in liberté information and the truth will out. Information, knowledge will out. And I've always thought that the publishing companies have been extremely corrosive and destructive to the production of uh, certainly academic knowledge and the ways in which they control not just who publishes, who gets heard, how widely they're heard, but it's also who moves through the academy, who gets tenure, who doesn't get tenure. But so it's deeply troubling. And I agree, knowledge should be free. I'd love to be in a position where I can say, you know what, that's fine. 
take it as great. I'm happy that you feel so strongly or so moved by what I've written that you would want to use it for yourself. To me, that's the greatest flattery that one can have as a scholar, that someone finds your knowledge worthy of redistributing. I think one of the most egregious versions of this is, and I'm not sure how you pronounce this publishing company, but Elisiver, Eliasiver, Elsiver, Mm -hmm. who own a bazillion, particularly in the sciences, journals that are charging libraries tens of thousands of dollars to subscribe to them while they're charging authors to publish in them. And I think this goes to your point earlier, Lee, that now there's real money that the publisher has a serious interest in protecting. As Mark said, this is value that has not been produced by the publisher, but has been produced by authors. And if there weren't this money being thrown around, I think copyright would be an easier thing to overcome and free all of our information. And if I could get on that Marxist wave with you, it's important to remember that when I say information should be free, that I'm not just talking about ideas that people have written down. Everything is information. Increasingly, we're finding that everything is information right now. And if everything is free... Well, welcome to Marxism. Right, right, right. Free as in gratis and libertarian. Yeah, right? exactly. But let's just start with gratis. Yeah. Right? right. Let's start there and work our way up. Right. right yeah. <laughs> but this leads me to another question that I really do want to talk about, which is do we need new norms for this age, for teaching in the 21st century, if we're still going to be obsessed with plagiarism, which I have don't think that we're in danger of overcoming anytime soon. But if we're going to remain obsessed with plagiarism, then do we need to talk about new norms and honestly, new penalties for plagiarism at the level of higher education? Well, I think, Lee, that you're someone who has been thinking a lot and for a long time about what are the possibilities and exciting ways in which forms of not just knowledge production, but also dissemination actually open up opportunities we didn't have before, but fundamentally then change the very nature of what counts as knowledge and, as you were pointing out, what counts as information. And I think that, in general, the web has been much more lax in certain circumstances about the free spreading of information. I mean, memes wouldn't be possible without just spreading information. Now, I'm not saying it's an entire free-for-all, like someone like Brian Leiter might get really angry if you copy something from his blog and sue you, probably, I'm sure. (laughs) Per se. But I think that things like YouTube, TikTok, even Twitch, all of these forms of presenting, for lack of a better term, content or knowledge, one might say, also open themselves up to opportunities for reproduction in which the rules of plagiarism don't make sense, I think. I think that you're highlighting something that is really important, which is that today's college-age students have grown up in a world in which much of the information that is available and important to them is not tied to a singular human author. Mm. I mean, Wikipedia is just anonymously authored information. I mean, it's, of course, not anonymously offered, but it's authored by a group, by a collective. A lot of the things that you see on Reddit are anonymously authored. A lot of the things that you see on Twitter are not technically anonymously authored, but you don't know who the author is. 
And so it's strange to be the police in a world like that and say, you know, this is the law of attribution when the actual world that they live in makes that law seem totally senseless. It's like being a traffic cop and someone's controlling the cars through remote control. That's not to say, importantly, that there aren't good reasons in the jobs that we have to still try to teach the rules. I mean, I could care less whether or not people wear white shoes after Labor Day, but I live in the South and I know that if my friend is dressing for something, you know, formal in the South, I'm going to say you might not want to wear those white shoes and this is why. But if I don't personally care and I don't know, I feel like just going from the top of this episode to now, I might be even convincing myself more that I just really don't care about cheating, plagiarism. Well, and I think where you were going, I would follow Namely that to the extent that this is a guild that we're in, there is nothing wrong, I think, with helping students understand that this is the way in which our guild operates. And here are the reasons why. Here are the reasons why we don't like plagiarism within our guild and so on. I don't need any form of punishment in order to do that. Yeah, my worry, though, is taking that approach with students is basically saying, here's how you game the system, which is exactly why students cheat in the first place. Yeah, I see that. I'm with you. I'm not overly invested in policing students in terms of plagiarizing, but I am invested in hoping that my class in some small way helps them to cultivate certain types of skills that they may find important as they move through life. I suppose my worry, though, is that every time I do that, that it's tantamount to saying to them, Despite the fact that I think that the capitalist exploitation of labor is completely unjustified and wrong, it's very important that you show up to work on time. (laughs) And I noticed you spent an extra 15 minutes at lunch. Right. 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 Do you really have to spend seven minutes in the restroom? What are you doing in there? And that's not the official uniform. Right. Where's your flair? Where's your flair? Where's 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 your your flair? But I have 15 pieces of flair. No, but I mean, I, I certainly agree with that. But I think that there are ways to think about these habits and these practices as having an objective benefit outside of the context of capitalist organization. But to the extent that plagiarism is a form of theft then it is a form of stealing someone else's labor. And that then makes you a capitalist. Yeah, I agree with that. Policy capitalist. Well, let me give you an example of a new norm that I've instituted in my classes as a consequence of thinking about this issue. I always begin my classes informing my students that I never will use the Turnitin service. So if you don't already know what this is, Turnitin is basically a plagiarism detection service where you feed students' work into the service and they tell you whether or not it's plagiarized. And I tell my students, I'll never use that in this class. And I give them the whole spiel that I gave you at the top of this episode, which is, I'm not police. I don't want to be police. (laughs) I don't think that it's good for any of us for me to spend all that time surveilling. I don't want to assume our already that everyone in here is a putative cheater. And I think it's really important that you learn. I'm not as concerned with your cheating as I am with your learning. And so if you find yourself in a position where you're feeling compelled to cheat, we need to talk about what's gotten you to that position. So I tell my students that all the time. I've also began using an 
honor code in my classes. Mm. I used to work at a university that had an honor code. I liked it. And despite my complaints about the economy of honor and esteem earlier, I think that there are better and worse ways to institute these kinds of things. But my honor code is very simple. And it just says, I promise to treat everyone in here with respect. I promise to always be open to disagreement. And I promise to the best of my abilities to do my own work, to not copy other people. Right. They have to hand it back in the first week. And I say to them when they all hand it back, great. Now none of us have to worry about cheating. Mm. Right. We've all made promises to one another. So I don't have to worry about tracking it down. And you don't have to worry about cheating because clearly you've signed this document that says you're not trying to track me down about cheating. You really want me to learn. That is just a way of addressing without addressing the plagiarism issue, but more importantly, trying to set the tone for the community of learning that I want us to have together. And I think that it's really done wonders for me in my classes. I like how you talk about that. I always tell my students, we're a community for this semester. We're a community of learners. You're learning from me. I'm definitely learning from you. And I really want you to learn from each other. And the best way to do that is if you bring your honest selves to the class. I like that, Lee. I often do this exercise where we together as a class come up with the honor code and then I write it up and have them sign it. And yet it never occurred to me to insert questions about plagiarism or cheating or guide them to insert questions about plagiarism or cheating in that exercise. So I think I'm going to do it from now on. I mean, I do think that they care about plagiarism and cheating in two cases. One, when other people cheat off of them. And two, when they feel like other people are getting ahead because they're cheating. That's just the unfortunate structure of the learning environment right now. And there's nothing I personally or any of us in that classroom can do to fix that. But I don't want it to go unacknowledged. Yeah, I think another norm that universities and colleges really need to consider is not making plagiarism a basis for expulsion. Yeah, I agree with that for sure. My decriminalization of plagiarism has gone so far that I give students an opportunity to rewrite the assignment without the plagiarism. Yeah, definitely that. Though I do say if I find or discover that you've plagiarized and you're going to fail this assignment, 10 times out of 10, I call them into my class, hey, you know what? Rewrite this and let's show some support for the ideas that you have. What I always want is students to develop confidence in their ability to articulate an argument or an idea. And then we can move on to, okay, how do you do the research in order to support that argument? But initially, just write. Because I always have weekly assignments where students have to write a one to two page response paper. And it's like, no, no, it's not formal. You know, I'm expecting support, no sources, just what you think in whatever form you want to do it. If you want to do first person pronoun, that's fine. If you want to talk about a particular event in your life, just, I just want you to speak. And hopefully that will give them the confidence to where they will like, oh, I can find support for this. I can develop techniques by which I can ground this deeper. But the core of that is... I have confidence in what I have to say, which undermines probably 70% of the reasons why people plagiarize. Yeah, when I was teaching fewer students per semester, I used to have them on their first writing assignment cite literally everything that their eyes saw before they wrote this essay. Mm-hmm. You know, if they looked at Wikipedia, if you know, and I'm like, you don't have to actually cite anything in the essay other than direct quotes, but anything that you look at, I want to know what it is. Because one, that disinclines them to directly quote someone without 
attribution because if they have to write everything that they looked at, they know I can look at everything that they looked at. Right. And so they're just self-monitoring there. But also it gives me a chance to then after that say, okay, this is something you don't need to cite. This is something that you do need to cite. And we can have a longer conversation where there's really no stakes except for learning how this stupid system of citation works. We can have a longer conversation about what common knowledge is, what proper attribution is. And of course, how in the world do you navigate these arcane citation guides right. to actually cite things that you want to cite? People, there's no reason to be worried about whether the University of Chicago requires a comma or a period or something. Just get yourself a program that will do this yeah. for you, and then you don't have to worry ever again. Zotero. Zotero, exactly. Call us Zotero. <laughs> So Noel has issued last call, and while we're waiting for our last drinks, will one of you call a cab? I'll call a cab. No problem. And also, while we're waiting for our last drinks, we want to remind everybody that you can support this podcast on Patreon. Our page is patreon.com backslash hotel bar sessions. Unlike last season, we actually have exclusive content on Patreon this season, our Afterthoughts series, which we used to post for free on YouTube, you can now enjoy on our Patreon page if you are one of our patrons. So please go over there and sign up for one of our membership levels. We really appreciate your support. Not all information wants to be free. (laughs) (laughs) And I want to let the listeners know that every single word that we've said, we got it from somebody else. All right, the taxi's here. Good night, night, y'all. Bye, guys. (laughs) 